Good morning, everyone. Hey, thanks to the band. That's actually my favorite Christmas song, Christmas Carol. Um, it's a great song. I actually have it on, it cycles through in my tablet, so I listen to that song all year long. So um, that's a good one. Uh, as John has said, my name is Dan. Uh, I would like to welcome you to Skyline today, particularly those of you who are here for the first time. Uh, if that's you, not only you know, put the little check mark on your connection card, but look me up afterwards. It'd be nice to talk to you a little bit, uh, get to know you. We're wrapping up today our series on guardrails, which is a, both a, a title and a concept that we borrowed from Andy Stanley at North Point Community Church uh, down in Georgia. I mean, guardrails are, are funny things, really, right? You don't notice them when you're driving, unless maybe someone else has crashed into them and they're all wrinkled up right there, right? Um, but you're actually glad they're there. And as I was preparing this, I, I uh, remembered back when I was in college, I had an, I had an odd little car, uh, 1972 Honda 600 sedan, uh, basically a frame wrapped around a motorcycle engine. Um, if, uh, there's probably a picture of it they could show you right there. Um, yeah, you, that tells you how old I was because we didn't have color photography back then. Uh, so I had this little, this little car, as, as if it wasn't enough that it was this little teeny car, you know, my dad and I, as you can see in the picture, we chopped the back end off, uh, we turned it into a little pickup truck, it left the car with very little weight in the back, and had not really that much weight in the front either, a two-cylinder engine uh, in that car, 33 horsepower, uh, you could really move. Um, it, it's it's kind of hard to grasp the actual size of this car, uh, but... Uh, People walking by my apartment one night realized it was small enough that they could lift it up and put it on top of the dumpster. Fortunately, I had a couple friends in the house with me, and we were able to lift it off the dumpster and put it back in the driveway where I belong. Uh, it is not a very big car, but it was a truck, right? So I figured it's a truck. I can take it anywhere any other truck can go. Um, so like this road uh, that is in the Santa Rita Mountains. The Santa Rita Mountains are south of Tucson, Arizona, just north of the Mexico border. And um, so one day, my roommate, uh, Greg, and I, my college roommate, were driving down this little dirt road, uh, zipping along, uh, going around the curves and over the dips and the bumps and having a, just a good time. It's a beautiful day. Um, on one side of us is the mountain. On the other side of us is nothing, just the cliff and the air. And as I come around this curve, I hit a little patch of gravel, and the heavier engine, not super heavy, but the heavier engine kind of digs into the gravel, and the lighter back end just keeps going. And we do a complete 360 in the middle of the road. Uh, I probably looked like this next picture in the car. Um, <laughs> so uh, I was like, ah! And at that moment, I realized that in my life and in that spot, I really wish there had been some guardrails. Um, I would have felt a lot more comfortable if there were guardrails. Um, but there weren't, right? And, and I, was, I was literally afraid for my life, right? There was no particular reason why we didn't spin off the road into, uh, off the cliff. Um, I'm glad we didn't. I also realized maybe I was driving a little too fast for the road conditions. And that memory has stuck with me ever since that time. Uh, I've been a more careful driver uh, since that happened. But guardrails, they're designed, right? Their, their purpose is to keep you from straying off the road into dangerous or off-limit areas, or in that particular example, 
off the cliff. They, they have two purposes. They direct, right? They show you where the path is, stay within these guardrails, and they protect you. If you get too close to the edge, you bump against the guardrail and, and come, back, come back in, right? If you hit the guardrail, your car might get dinged up a little bit. Maybe your, your neck will ache uh, for a while. You might get a little scratched up, but you're not going off the cliff. It's important to note that to be effective, right, the guardrail has to be placed within the safe zone. It's got to be a place that you're still alive when you run into it. It doesn't do any good to put a guardrail at the bottom of the cliff. Um, that probably just hurts even more when you hit there. So, so this series on guardrails is about setting guardrails in our personal lives, right? In the, the areas where we're at risk of hurting the people around us or hurting ourselves, hurting the people we love, right? So these guardrails, they direct and protect. They keep us from the actions that cause damage to the people around us. And they're, and they're personal standards. And that's, that's actually an important part of the guardrail, right? I, I don't know how far from the edge of the cliff you need to put your guardrail, but wherever it is, when you bump into it, it should, it should spark your conscience. It should kind of light up Something in your brain and your heart that says, ooh, watch out. There's a danger zone right there. I better, I better be careful. Right? When you bump into that guardrail, you're still in the safe zone. Um, let, let me pause and kind of back up a little bit on this idea of personal standards. So we believe that in the Bible, God gave us really clear standards about what is right to do and what is right to avoid. Um, and we're not challenging or changing any of those God standards today. Rather, we're talking about a personal standard placed somewhere in the safe zone, somewhere where God says, you're free to act, but knowing that there's a danger zone eventually, I want to put a guardrail in place. Paul, uh, one of the earlier followers of Jesus, wrote about this in the eighth chapter of the letter to Corinthians, the eighth chapter of 1 Corinthians. He happened to be talking about a specific issue relevant to the Corinthian church, but the principles, I think, apply to all kinds of guardrails. What was happening in the Corinthian church is uh, there was these people who had decided to follow Jesus, Christians, and there were a lot of other religions being practiced in the, the town of Corinth. And in some of those religions, you would, you would bring an animal to be sacrificed and they would sacrifice this animal to an idol. And then there was meat because you had a dead goat or a sheep or a cow or something. And, and the, the temple to that idol would push this meat into the marketplace and they would sell it. And they would sell the meat cheaper than meat that you could buy from a farm because the cow had been donated to the temple. So if, particularly if you were poor and you were in the market, you might buy this meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Now, the Bible's clear that following an idol instead of following God is wrong. That's the danger zone. Don't follow an idol. But this early church, they didn't know. Is it, well, what about buying that meat? What about eating that meat? Is that, am I following the idol by doing that? I mean, in some fashion, you could argue that maybe I'm supporting the temple because I'm buying, I'm buying this meat. But I didn't sacrifice it. I don't worship that idol. What should I do? And different people in the church set different guardrails. Some said, I won't, I won't eat it. Some people went so far as to say, I won't eat meat at all because I don't know where it came from. Um, and others said, no, I think, I think it's okay. I think uh, you know, I'm 
It's, it's not something that pulls me away from God, so it's all right. So they wrote this letter to Paul, and they said, Paul, what, help us out here. Should we have the same guardrail for everybody in our church? Should we all agree on you know, where, the, where the line is inside the safe zone that we need to live by? And Paul wrote them about two principles, liberty and conscience. And in the context that none of them were worshiping idols, none of them had gone into the danger zone, he said, watch out for two things. He said, if, if you have liberty to eat this food, if you've placed your guardrail, let's say, relatively close to the danger zone, you can't look at people farther away and say they don't understand grace. You can't say they don't understand their relationship with Jesus. You can't say they're being legalistic or following a law or trying to make, right, make their way right with God by doing right things. You can't judge their heart. And similarly, he said to the people who put their guardrail farther away, they said, I'm, I'm not going to eat that meat. He said, you can't look at the people whose guardrail is closer to the edge and say that they're not Jesus' followers, that they're, that they're sinners. Right? Don't eat the meat. That's fine. But you can't condemn the people who do. You can't judge their heart. And then after reminding them that they can't judge where the other person's guardrail is, he says, now then, I want you to be sensitive to your brother or your sister in Christ. Right? While you live in accordance with your personal guardrail, don't reach out and drag your brother over their guardrail. Don't go to your friend who has a guardrail in a different spot than you and say, look, I want you to come over here, break through your guardrail, and come over here and live with me. That can wound them. It can harm them. And harming them is going to be an offense to Jesus Christ. So the guardrails are, are personal guides, right? They're, they're personal standards that we follow because it's going to spark my conscience. Your guardrail is going to spark your conscience. Um, and by doing that, they remind us, we're getting, for us, we're getting too close to the edge. So today, as we think about uh, guardrails, we're going to take on a, a particularly hot topic, and one where the standard of behavior in the Bible is almost completely in opposition to today's culture in America. But also one where nearly everyone, whether they follow Jesus or not, recognizes that if we all lived the way the Bible teaches in this area, we would have a better society. We would have stronger marriages. We would have stronger families. We would have the political discourse would be more civil. We would have fewer abortions. We would have less child abuse, less divorce. We wouldn't have rape. We wouldn't need the Me Too movement. We're going to talk about sex today. Now, for those of you here for the first time, and maybe those of you who have been here a lot of times, you think, that's an unusual topic a couple of days before Christmas. Um, but when we think about our deeper regrets, when we think about our past, right? We think about the things that we've seen that have damaged the lives of the people around us, maybe damaged our own lives. Right? We think about our hurts and our hang-ups and our habits. Sexual relationships is a fundamental area, right? It's really important. It has lasting impact on us. And the Bible teaches about it. So it makes sense that we have some guardrails here. 
I'm going to start by kind of digging into the Bible a little bit to define the safe zone and the danger zone, um, and then we'll talk about some ideas for guardrails. Uh, remembering that guardrails are personal, so you're going to want to think about ones that make sense for you. I'll give you some ideas maybe to kind of start the conversation in your mind. So uh, digging into what the Bible teaches us about the safe zone and the danger zone. Way back in Genesis, it describes the fact that God created male and female. I can interpret that and say God created sex. He designed that for us. He commanded us to be fruitful and multiply probably one of the only commands of God that we have followed as a human society uh, extraordinarily well. Right? Uh, and within marriage, that physical sexual relationship is part of what makes us one. It, it's part of what connects us. It's part of what allows a marriage to be representative of Christ and the church, that you're united in Malachi chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians 7 and Hebrews chapter 13. Within marriage, God calls us to faithfulness, to a high standard of fidelity, to go back to a little bit of Latin. Um, you know the phrase high fidelity. It's what I titled the speech today. Uh, back in my era, when you only had black and white photos, um, your hi-fi, your radio, your turntable, the four CDs, right? You, you wanted to get high fidelity. You wanted to get a faithful reproduction of what was really happening. We talk about that today with high-definition televisions, right? big plasma screens. You want to get it as realistic as possible. Fidelity is being faithful. It's being, and in the sense of, of our marriage, and some of you might have even used that word in your marriage vows, it's faithful to your spouse. That we're going to be faithful to God, and in doing so, we're going to be faithful to our spouse. Outside of marriage, the Bible describes sexual relations as immoral or wrong, or to use a Bible word, sin. And that's why I say this is nearly completely opposed to the messages that we have in our culture, right? I mean, just think about how much of our entertainment, the movies we see, the songs we listen to, the books that we read, it's based on picking up and hooking up and, you know, this one and then that one and then that one again. And just imagine sitting with a group of your friends at work at lunch and saying, I think it would really be best if nobody had sex outside of marriage. And the reaction that you would get at that table. Right? Our culture is completely opposed to this in the message that they give us. We just flood our eyes and our ears and our minds with this idea that so-called consenting adults can do whatever they want. We laugh about it on the movie screen. We feel emotionally engaged in it when the song comes on in the radio. But then when one of your friends or family members actually goes and has an affair, it's terrible, right? It devastates the family. It devastates the children. It changes the relationship for life. When powerful men treat women like objects, we're shocked, appropriately shocked, but we were just singing about that or we were just watching a movie about that or we were just reading a book about that and we weren't shocked then. Our culture pushes this message on us, tries to create it as an acceptable standard of behavior, but the consequences are terrible. Why is the reality so different from the images in the movies or in the songs? And interestingly, the Bible tells us why. So let's dig into that and um, 
I mentioned the, the letter to 1 Corinthians before. I'm going to go to chapter 6 in particular, and in your, uh, in your handout, you have these verses on the, on the back, but uh, we'll, just, we'll read them here together. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee from sexual immorality. So Paul makes it pretty clear, right? Um, uh, within marriage, good. Outside, stay away from it. This is a very different than what Paul said about food, right? When he was talking about eating that meat, he said, hey, you can eat it if you want to, or you can not eat it if that's better for you. Um, you, have, you have liberty there. He doesn't say that about sexual immorality. He didn't say, say, make up your mind. Some of you will feel okay with that, and some of you won't. Uh, just try not to hurt others. No, he doesn't say that. He says, flee from it. Get away from it. Avoid it. And be honest with yourself. Isn't that what you really want? I mean, husbands, isn't that what you want for your wife? That she flees sexual immorality? Wives, isn't that what you want for your husband? Uh, parents, isn't that what you want for your kids? Kids, isn't that what you want for your parents? Right? Brother for sister, fiancé for whatever the other part of fiancé is. Both fiancés. You want them to be faithful, right? That's what you want, really. And this is the message that Paul gives. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. That's an interesting phrase there, all other sins. Paul says sexual sins are different. Now, every sin, all sins, separate us from God. Uh, however, in our human sense, if we go, oh, that's a really big sin, or that's not such a big sin, right? Sometimes we talk about white lies. It's still a lie, right? All sins separate us from God. We're equally far from the standard of perfection that is God's truth and God's rightness. And when Jesus offers us forgiveness by grace, he covers all sins of all kinds. This, this distinction that we create humanly to say some sins are bigger than others is not true with, with respect to our relationship with God. But Paul, inspired by God, writes that there is something different about sexual sins, even among so-called consenting adults. He says these have a consequence on your body, a lasting consequence on your physical body. And, and I think there's at least two ways that this is going to be true. One is that it it damages and undermines relationships. And the, the most obvious is a married couple when someone goes and has an affair. A lot of times that marriage breaks up. It ends up in divorce. It ends up scarring the children. Right? It damages and undermines relationships. It also damages and undermines future relationships because it makes you a liar, possibly for life. You have a secret. Something that you did, something in your past, something in your sexual history, and maybe you've told your spouse or your fiancé about some of that, but you haven't told them everything. You're holding that part back. And the longer the time goes by, the harder it's going to be to say, there's something I didn't tell you. And so you just hang on to it. And somewhere in your heart, there's that little corner that says, this part of my life I'm not willing to give to my spouse. I'm going to hold it back. You're not fully transparent. You're not fully one. And this, it just sits there, eats at you. Uh, there's a song by, by Darius Rucker where he, he kind of ex explains this idea. 
He says, if I told you the mess that I can be when there's no one there to see, could you look the other way? Could you love me anyway? And that's what we fear, right? We say we're afraid to tell our partner because we think it'll destroy their love for us. And so we continue to lie. And we never really fully connect. We never really experience the fullness of love. We have a program here at Skyline called Reengage. And it's designed uh, actually to help couples uh, build their marriages on grace and on the, the truth of the Bible. And if, if this issue of being a secret keeper, being a liar, um, if that resonates with you, if you're like, oh, wish you hadn't been talking about that right now, Dan, kind of hurts a little bit, um, consider joining Reengage. It, it will give you some of the tools that you need to have that conversation with your spouse in a way that is safe, in a way that can lead to confession, forgiveness, unity. Um, I'd, I would encourage that. But the point that Paul's making is that this, is, this sin is different. It does have these consequences. He describes it as a sin against their own body. And let's be clear, sin against the other body involved as well. And, and why is this sin against the body such a big deal for Paul? Uh, let me start by going back to the Genesis passage I referenced earlier. In Genesis 1.27, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. See, these physical bodies, these minds, were created in some fashion representative of God. Jesus um, made an interesting statement one time. He was asked a question about paying taxes. He says, do you think we should pay taxes, Jesus? And he said, show me the coin that you use to pay taxes. Someone dug out a coin and gave it to him. And he looked at the coin and he said, whose image is on this coin? He said, Caesar. Caesar's image had been stamped on that coin. He said, so render unto Caesar or give back to Caesar that which is Caesar's. But he didn't stop there. Jesus often would extend a question into an issue which cuts a little bit closer to the heart. So he said, give back to Caesar that which is Caesar's and give to God that which is God. The image of God is stamped on our bodies. That's the way we were created. How do you give that back to God? Our bodies are valuable to God because they have his image on them. Whether we're a follower of Jesus or not, right? all of us created in the image of God. But Paul doesn't just leave that to be guessed at. He says, I'm hoping you'll remember that passage in Genesis and understand that your bodies are valuable. He's going to emphasize why. He goes on in verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? I like that, uh, yeah. do you not know? Don't you know? I mean, you should know this. I told you this when I was there, Corinthian church, and maybe you don't know, maybe you've forgotten, or maybe there's new people have come. So I'll remind you again, don't you know that when you believed in Jesus, God sent the Holy Spirit to live within you. You have become a literal temple, a temple of God, the dwelling place of God. Sometimes, when I remember to do so, I bring flowers home for my wife. <laughs> Thank you. That's what I was waiting for. Um, 
But when I do that, she, she opens up a cupboard and she pulls a vase out of the back of the cupboard and she dusts it off, right? And puts it on the table. And the vase is sitting there in a place of honor in the table. Is it because she suddenly decided that the table looks better with the vase on it? Or this is such a special vase that it needs to be out on the table? Not at all. It's because of the flowers that are in it. And those flowers are an expression of our relationship, of my love for her, of my commitment to her. Right? So the vase has become valuable. It's become useful because of what it contains. In the same way, our bodies, our physical bodies, become valuable because of what they contain. They contain the presence of God. And if I'm looking at another person who's a Christ follower, that person also contains the presence of God. It's true of them, right? So it's a high value that they've been stamped with the image of God the Father, that they contain God the Holy Spirit. But in addition to what they contain and how they were designed, there's a, there's a third way that things become valuable. Uh, last month, there was a used wheelchair that was for sale. Um, you probably couldn't get it on eBay, but it was for sale. It was relatively fancy. It was a motorized wheelchair, right? Had its computer hooked up to it. New, it might cost fifteen, maybe $20,000. Pretty fancy wheelchair. But it was used, right? So, and for sale. The wheelchair ended up selling for $393,000. Who would pay $393,000 for a motorized wheelchair? Well, one, probably somebody who's never going to sit in it, right? They're not even going to use it. But it used to be Stephen Hawking's wheelchair. Stephen Hawking's being probably the most famous physicist of our age, the fact that he owned that wheelchair gave it value. It wasn't the wheelchair itself. You could have built another, you could probably build a better wheelchair, right, for a lot less money than $393,000. But because Stephen Hawking's owned it, it was valuable. So let's keep reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. For those who have chosen to follow Jesus, God has bought you. He's bought you out of slavery to sin and made you his adopted child. And he paid an incredible price for that. The life of Jesus. This is really the heart of the Christmas message. Right? We, we kind of like to celebrate Christmas and little baby Jesus in the manger and the wise men bringing the gifts and um, it's all a good time, right? But the heart of Christmas is that we were trapped in a life of hurts and hang-ups and habits. We were trapped in a life where we damaged the people around us and we damaged ourselves because we couldn't live within a set of guardrails. We couldn't live in a way that was right. Our relationships with each other were broken. Our relationships with God were broken. So God sent Jesus, the only perfect one, the only one that could satisfy God's standard of right behavior. And at the price of his life and in the glory of his resurrection, you have been purchased. So this is your value. This is your body stamped with the image of God the temple, the dwelling place of God the Holy Spirit and purchase owned by Jesus. That's why you're so valuable. And that's why Paul places such an emphasis on fleeing sexual immorality, avoiding it entirely, right? Because as the verse goes on, since your body is so valuable, since you were bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body. 
That's an incredibly high standard, to use your body in a way that brings honor and glory to God, to Jesus, to the one who saved us, to the Holy Spirit who lives in us. In the book of Romans, that practice is called a living sacrifice or an act of worship to honor God with our bodies. So if the biblical standard is to flee sexual immorality and honor God with our bodies and honor the bodies of the people around you whom God also loves, why flirt with the danger zone? Why live with no guardrail there? It doesn't make sense. So let's put some guardrails. Let's think about some areas where when you look back on your own life, I look back on my life, or what you've seen in others, where's an appropriate guardrail that would help me stay inside the safe zone? So I've got three ideas, um, but I've put four lines on your little handout. So you can write something down that's important to you while you're thinking about it. And maybe these three ideas uh, would also be good possibilities for you. So the first one is to talk about it with your spouse or your fiancé, or if you're single with your prayer partner or your mentor. Be honest about the things that tempt you, honest about the things you face at work or on the road. And going back to that idea of liberty and conscience and not dragging your friend over their barrier, right? Ask your partner about things that would offend them. Say, if I was doing this thing and you saw me, would that offend you? Would you, would you think I was not being faithful if I was acting in that, in that way, right? If I'm eating a meal with a coworker, have I crossed a line for you? Um, be aware of that, right? How about if I go for a drive with a friend? Does that cross the line? And come up with strategies that will not only help you stay faithful, but will encourage your spouse about your faithfulness, right? Maybe you need to call your spouse when you're in a car with a friend. Hands-free, please, right? <laughs> Don't drive like the way I used to. Um, Hands-free. Um, but yeah, come up with a strategy that works, that works for you. And I've mentioned the re-engage program earlier. That's a tool that can help you frame that conversation, right? That can that can set some standards where you've, you've had a discussion about it. You can help each other in this area of your life. The second one I'll mention is that secrets are a trap. If you find yourself thinking, I hope my spouse doesn't find out that I'm here, or I hope my kids don't learn this about me, that should spark your conscience. Right? Even more obviously, if someone tells you, don't tell anyone about this, in the context of a sexual situation or a relationship, that should really spark your con conscience, right? Um, on this point, I've known too many churches, and one would be too many, but I've known too many churches that ended up really hurting people because some of the leaders in the church, sometimes the pastors, had secrets in this area of their lives. And the people who knew about it kept the secrets because they were afraid that if they said something, it would destroy the good work that God was doing in this place. The work of God is never advanced by hiding sin. Never. You could write that down as one of your points too, I suppose. The work of God is never advanced by hiding sin. And here at Skyline, we're committed to the principle that all of us, and especially the leaders, are open to being challenged from the Bible. For those of you who are members of Skyline, I say you have an obligation to speak up if one of our leaders is behaving inappropriately in this area of their lives. Don't keep it a secret. Speak up. Secrets are a trap. 
And the third recommendation is probably one that your mother told you, but I think it makes a lot of sense. Lights on, doors open. That's pretty simple, right? Um, Two teenagers in a room, do you want the lights on and the door open or not? I think you do, right? I think you do. Uh, You're tempted by pornography on your computer. Are you as tempted when the door is open? Probably not, right? When we had teenagers in our house, all the computers, including mine, were in a common room in an open floor plan. Anybody could walk in any time and see what you were doing on the computer, right? Transparency keeps us safe. Shine a light on things, and we don't go through the guardrail. And this one's even, it's a possible substitute for the, the so-called Billy Graham rule, right? Uh, you know that one. I think they, they mentioned it uh, in the video on the first week of our series, right? And this is the rule that you don't have a meal or, or stay in a room alone with a person of the opposite gender other than your spouse. Now, it's true that in the workplace, that rule can be difficult to follow and it can be penalizing to opposite gender people on your team. But for some couples, this is where they want and need to put their guardrail. Frankly, what people think about you at work is not as important as your marriage. So if that's where you need the guardrail, put it in place. And if you're concerned about workplace equity, then don't have a meal alone or stay in a room alone with anybody. doesn't really matter what gender they are, right? And now you're being fair and equitable to, to everyone. Um, but for me, in my case, lights on, doors open works in that situation as well, right? It's the way I deal with it. Um, it's very unlikely that I will find myself crossing into the danger zone in a public place. But if I were to think about shutting the door, if I were to think about let's, let's just have this just the two of us, that should and would spark my conscience to think maybe I'm, maybe I'm getting too close to the line. Lights on, doors open. It's a good idea. You may have something else that you think because of your history, because of your relationship today, there's something that you need to write down, something you need to talk about with your spouse and say, here's an area where I need a guardrail. It'll help me honor God with my body. And your spouse, your partner can help you with that. I recognize this is an unusual thing to talk about on Sunday morning in church, especially right before Christmas. But we know, many of us from personal experience, the damage that we can cause to ourselves, to our marriage, to others, to positive relationships by going off the safe path in this area of our lives. And what is there out in our culture that equips you and supports you to remain faithful? What is it out there in the world around us that encourages you to seek true intimacy with your spouse alone? Nothing, really. It's a dangerous place out there. You need some guardrails. So let me encourage you to talk about this with God and with someone who knows you well and set some guardrails for yourself. You already wish you had and you won't regret that you did. Let's pray. Our Lord God, I thank you today first for your forgiveness and grace, for the fact that 
before we knew you, we strayed. We did all kinds of things. And you sought us. You sent Jesus as a gift. And you were willing to sacrifice his life to win us back and forgive us for all that stuff that we've done. And not only forgive us, but give us the power in the Holy Spirit to be able to live rightly, to be able to flee sexual immorality and honor you with the way that we live in this world. I thank you for acting in us in that way and pray that we will continue to be a place that offers that grace, that love, and that forgiveness to the people around us so that we can see lives changed and marriages stronger and children growing up in strong marriages and our community impacted by the image that we give here of the truth of who Jesus is. In his name we pray. Amen.